0: Episode 139, How Do You Lead Innovation? Roy Rosen, Chief Innovation Officer at the University of Pennsylvania, Penn Medicine, explains. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. There is lots of talk and articles about how you do innovation, but less about how you lead innovation within an organization. Roy Rosen is the Chief Innovation Officer at the University of Pennsylvania, Penn Medicine. He's held the role for the past five years. For the prior 18 years, he was the VP of Innovation over at the software company Intuit. We talk today about Roy's philosophy and a model that he uses in order to accelerate the pace of innovation. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Roy.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: One of the things that you have talked about is there's a lot of conversations about how do you do innovation but there's yeah. fewer conversations about how do you lead innovation
1: well it's it, it's true you know everyone i think is excited about these innovation techniques and methods around really rapid validation and lean startup and fast experimentation techniques which are essential to doing it well but you know it it happens within an environment and and leaders do have to create the environment in which Entrepreneurial people, so not just people who are going to go start a new company, but people who want to do creative problem solving and, and just change things for the better, where they can be free to work, where they can be free to invent and to create new models and new methods. So I, I think it's absolutely an essential insight to say, well, what do you have to do to create that environment in which people can can operate and, and do good things?
0: I get the challenge there because people are, especially in the healthcare. Industry, they are really, really busy with their day jobs. Yeah, it is part of the challenge. Just simply enabling people to carve out space for innovation, and how do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. You know, this is true of every industry. I don't think that's unique to healthcare. Even in the high tech world, it's not like you have people sitting around with, with a lot of time on their hands. So it's a, it's a decision to invest in, in really working on your future to some degree. The way I like to think of it is in, in a couple different dimensions. One is this framework of horizon planning. You know, we where, where you think about your world almost like asset allocation. Like you're managing a portfolio. And there are these core businesses that you have to pay attention to and allocate most of your resources to um, because that's what pays the bills and pays paychecks and keeps the lights on and in the short term keeps you financially viable. And the other two horiz- horizons are interesting, right? So the second horizon is sort of these new businesses or new things that you've already validated, and now it's time to scale. And, and then the third one, the third bucket, are your experiments. And the experiments are more, gee, I don't know, could this work? You know, should I scale it, and in what direction? So you're really just experimenting, and it's different metrics, and it's often different people. But when you when you have that kind of framework of these three horizons. You actually can start to ask questions around, well, what percentage of my resources, of my time, of my money, of my people do I want to have allocated to each and be deliberate about it? So so that's certainly, you know, one way that you can start to say, gee, how do I do this when I'm super busy and, and everyone's already working too many hours? And, and you start to develop a language around what does it mean to, to say I'm going to have deliberate allocation of, of resources?
0: Just paraphrasing. When you divide up your day, you see it in three pieces. The first piece is figuring out what to do to begin with. You know, like, how am I going to allocate what well, you called it asset allocation? What am I going to put in my portfolio? I've got a thousand options. You go back to your office and you lift up the voicemail. You got 28 messages from mm-hmm. <laughs> from tech vendors yeah. or, uh, you know, people who have the next big thing. Yeah. You know, how do you call through them Is your first bin or, or horizon? And then the second one is, OK, you've already got stuff ongoing? How are you supporting it? Continuous development, I'm assuming. And then the third one is, all right, the experiments that we're doing. When, where,
1: how, who? Usually when people hear innovation, they think new stuff that you're adding to somebody's plate, which isn't necessarily the most productive way to think about it. I mean, you could say, you know, innovation is a a set of methods or way of doing work. And I'm going to apply this to the priorities that are already on my plate. You know, it's just a, a different way of doing it. I'm going to work on improving the performance, the outcomes that I get from from the work I'm already doing, and I think that you, when you start to think of it that way, it gets a little bit easier because almost every team that I've come across has a bunch of goals, right? You've got your annual plan, you've got your goals, and generally, some of them are stretch or there's a gap, and you don't know how to get to the to, to the goal that you've been asked to deliver. You know, that's an opportunity for, for innovation, even if it's in your core business. So, I, I, you know, I think that that's an important kind of distinction to make. You know, I, th- I think there's this blend of, of tops down and bottoms up. And, and I've seen more purely tops down type of programs where the leadership team is setting objectives and, and saying, hey, here are the most important things, and then assigning people to go work on those. And others that are purely bottoms up, which is sort of folks going off and pursuing things that they're interested in. And I think neither one of those is as effective as a blended model. So there's value to each, right? On the tops down, the leadership team should be aware of things that are important to them in, in their space, that, that are important competitively. So, you know, if you're in healthcare right now, you, you see things moving towards a value based in, in you know, risk-bearing contracts. You know, some people might have seen the news that Penn Medicine just agreed with Blue Cross that we're going to essentially not be paid for 30-day readmissions, that's a big, big deal for us right? and a lot of things to figure out. So that's an important strategic tops down um, type of uh, priority. Um, and there are a, a number of others you know, that, that range across health outcomes, that range across the community and things that we're trying to do for our, our patient population, even for our, our providers and our employee population. The one thing that
0: I have noticed transpire is that there's a difference between the goal that leadership has and perhaps the goal that the people who work for the leader have. And for example, there's many instances where somebody is basically just trying to protect their job. So if you start saying, oh, well, we're going to have this AI or, you know, some kind of decision matrix and we're going to automate this and there's going to be a robot and there's going to be a... What starts to happen is that the people who might have a slightly different objective, which is yeah. to take home a paycheck, start to yeah. obstruct progress. So, how do you get that vision cascaded in a way that everyone feels happy?
1: You yeah, know, so your question leads me to to one of the things I was going to say I realized as a response to to the earlier question. Which is, you know, the way that you reconcile that kind of tops down and bottoms up is you, is you look for people who have passion, who are wanting to pursue the thing that, that is important to work on, right? So so an assigned project doesn't work that well, because, you know, whenever you're trying to do something new in an organization, you 10 people say no to you. And if it's an assignment after the third or fourth no, you just stop. You know, if, if it's a passion, if it's something that you want to get done... You know that the innovator wants to get done, you know they can get past the seventh, eighth, and ninth, no. So you're looking for the you know the intersection of the important thing and and the person who wants you know to really wants to do it. In other words, they're pulling instead of you pushing. you know so that's one of the ways we decide who to work with and and, and even what to work on. I have seen the dynamic that you're describing, where there is obstruction, where it's fundamentally that change you're talking about is bad for someone. It is, first of all, it's your goal to find the the group for whom it's good. And generally, if if you're really talking about a better outcome, you know not necessarily a specific solution, but a better outcome, you're going to find someone for whom it's good. And you know, I, I remember a uh, an example a while back on point of care testing, which in some ways, this, these point- of care diagnostics are somewhat threatening to like a central lab. But there's a set of physicians who, you know, for example, want really fast and cheap results back, you know at the office, at the desk side, right, right in the exam room. And, or maybe even out in the field, and they may be the people pulling, and may, maybe the central lab is resisting, and maybe you have to start working with the physicians. So it's it's always finding the people who are really excited about you know what you're trying to do is certainly part of the formula there. That doesn't fully answer your question, though, because you know, you say, well, how do you get people on board? And it's absolutely critical. We think of the world in, in terms of lots of different stakeholders, and we can't really get anything done or be successful in many ways if we don't have the IS group and the legal group and the finance group and the marketing group on board. And so, you know, you are trying to get those folks upstream. Like if you think about it as a collaborative process where this is not just an engineering problem, but ultimately it has to become a business success. I need to have my my partners across functions way upstream. So they are actually part of this and they feel ownership. I think everybody knows sort of the throw things over the wall at the end when you're done, like that fails. And I think I think most organizations have gotten smart enough to realize that that, that fails. I, I think it's still kind of a little bit novel to realize that that innovation isn't necessarily like product and service stuff. That, you know, the change may come in sort of the business model, or the change may come in a distribution channel, or the change may come in sort of how you position and frame something, in which case that the the drivers of, of the good outcome could come from any one of your functions, sales and marketing or or finance or legal or privacy or IS. So I think that we do work awfully hard to engage all of those partners, paint a very clear vision of what we're trying to achieve. And it's not marriage to a solution. Like we're not married to one way of doing things. We're married um, to an outcome, to like the change we want to create. My my old friends at, at Intuit, who I, I still have just tremendous respect for, because I think they're great at this, you know, would say, fall in love with the problem. Don't fall in love with the solution. And I think if you fall in love with a problem, you do get around some of that. Like you might be trying to drive a solution that may actually be flawed. You may, maybe you don't realize all the things contextually that you need to realize that might get worse or get broken by what you're trying to do. But if you fall in love with a problem, you're going to have a lot more success when you engage your, your, those interdisciplinary partners. I think the, you know, the other way we generally create passion around you know, getting engaged and getting supportive is have people see things with their own eyes. You know, you can put it in a PowerPoint deck or you can explain how this patient population or that patient population is affected by by an issue. But if you actually take the folks that you need to work with and and bring them out and and have face-to-face and direct interaction and engagement with the the people you're trying to help, it's pretty hard, particularly in healthcare, for folks to resist because a lot of the folks, I've been very lucky, the people that I've worked with at Penn are incredibly mission driven. You know, they they want to get to a better world. They want to get to a better outcome.
0: Although one of the issues with innovation is that, and and I think it was Steve Jobs that said, you know, an innovation is only logical in hindsight. You know, like dots dots are only connected when you look backwards. So what winds up happening, and this gets into another kind of topic that I want to talk to you about, which is success metrics. But, you know, okay, so you've got someone with passion. They come up with an idea. They're passionate about this thing. Then you start getting the bean counters involved, you know, and yeah. there's lawyers that they you know, yeah. their first instinct is to say no. Those people are asking for what's their job. It's basically to punch holes in whatever passion <laughs> exists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how do you figure out what projects to proceed with, given the fact that it might be basically a spark of an idea? There might not be metrics there, but everybody's asking for metrics.
1: Going back to that tops down, bottom-up model, like we do spend time going around the executive team saying, you know, what are the big problems? What are the big opportunities you see in the system? And we do that kind of listening tour on a pretty regular basis. So we have a sense of what is important to the leaders and to the and the folks who are driving operations and who are, you know, managing this multi-billion dollar enterprise. At the same time, we have a lot of listening mechanisms at the front lines for the, the clinicians and, and other folks in the organization to tell us about when they have an observation or an idea or something that can make us better. And so, you know, we're often trying to connect the dots. When we see someone who's really passionate about driving change that falls within one of the areas that we know is a big opportunity or a big problem, maybe it's ED throughput or length of stay, maybe it's readmissions, maybe it's hospital acquired, you know, infections, because we've heard this from the chief medical officer, from the head of operations, from the CEOs of the hospitals. And then we see folks who are working on you know, or just even have an idea. Maybe they're not even working on it, but they have an insight, right? They're at the front line, they have an insight. So we can kind of grab those people and say, we can enable you. Like we we can work in an area that we know if we're successful, everyone's gonna like it. Everyone's gonna you know going to kind of want to see progress here. It, certainly there are good bean counters and bad bean bean counters, right? You know, I mean <laughs> there, there are there there are bean counters who are really more like, hey, you know, I'm gonna help you get <laughs> to, to position the, the, the organization effectively and other people who are obstructionists. You know, and I will say that we try to make a lot of quick progress before we do too much asking for permission and too much, you know, analysis. There's always some, like, is this an important area? Like, what are the economics of this area? What does the data say is going on in this problem? So there's always like some data analysis. But but this is where the the lean startup and the you know the the rapid validation methods come into play, right? Because if I need to ask for months or years of time and hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to get started, then I need to have the bean counters and and everyone else because there's not that much money lying around just to play with. But if I can design experiments that a team can do in hours or in days, you know, with a few hundred or maybe a few thousand dollars, you know, I don't need the same level of permission. You know, yeah, I still need to be careful with my IRB and that I'm not putting patients at risk, or that I'm not putting the system at risk. But I can generally design experiments really, really quickly, really cheaply, that don't require a ton of upfront buy-in. And I think it's really important, because in almost every organization I've ever been in, people love success, right? You know, if you ask for permission, you may be really slowed down. If you do some stuff and demonstrate, not like RCT-level data, But evidence, you know, I did this with 20 or 30 people and look what happened. And you can show something really interesting happened. You're going to get a lot more people on board because you have momentum. You sort of overcome inertia. And now it's a totally different conversation. It's not a, hey, should we do this? I don't know all these risks. I'm not sure all these other things I could be working on. You know, that's pretty different than, hey, look what happened when we did this new design, this new intervention, this new, you know, app, this new, you know, care model, I and mean, we just set up one practice or one unit for a week and did this. Look what happened. And, and people are like, "Whoa, that's cool!" You know, because then it's not. Mm, I wonder what would happen, right? It's it's a pretty different conversation.
0: All right. So I've fallen in love with the problem here. So yeah, I I, I want to hear how you tackled this. You just kind of dropped a couple of minutes ago, and. I hope you didn't think I I was going to miss it. (laughs) You dropped that U Penn and Blue Cross have cooked up this deal where they're not going to pay for 30 day readmissions. Okay, obviously that's a problem you can fall in love with. What'd you you do? Like, okay, so you got the memo. Now what? Like, as the chief of innovation with your designing experiments and your asset allocation scale and, and experimentation, like, what happened?
1: Well, you know, so first of all, we kind of knew stuff like this was coming, right? You know, so you started to see readmission penalties. This got interesting economically, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, even before that contract. But the good news is that you also have, you know, clinician leaders and, and administrative leaders in big places like Penn, academic medical centers who want to reduce readmissions just because it's the right thing to do. Like, right? people don't want to be back in the hospital. Um, anyway, so, you know, our chief medical officer and and chief quality officer, they're looking at this already saying, gee, you know, this is a good area to work in. The the economics, you know, the changing payment models just mean there's a good business case that you can make. So, okay, this is great. We have a place that we can play where we can do the right thing and get paid for being good at the right thing. But even when it started at the, the Medicaid, Medicare, you know, the CMS level, you already have lots of projects in place who are doing something and, and often doing good things, Right. So we have a a lot of skills here at Penn around this concept of connected health or automated hovering. Actually, some of our top researchers, Kevin Volpe, David Ash, and our CEO, um, Ralph Muller, actually wrote the New England Journal article a few years ago on this this concept of what they called automated hovering in the other 5,000 hours, right? where, gee, if we're going to be responsible for what happens outside of our purview when people are not with us, and even sick people are only with us a few hours a year and, you know, the other 5,000 waking hours of the year that they have, that's when all the interesting stuff happens that determines whether they get readmitted, determines how sick they get, determines, you know, the outcomes they have in their health. So we need to kind of insert ourselves into their life in different ways. We need to see and know about things that we never used to see and know about. So connected health is that ability to, to have that kind of sense and capability. And that could be that You know, that their scale is talking to us, that their Fitbit is talking to us, that their blood pressure cuff, their glucometer, their pill bottle, their asthmatic inhaler, that we're getting, you know, kind of real time insight into their daily life. You know, we started to design interventions that really play off of that concept. Kevin Volpe and and the Chibe Institute have done some terrific work here. Um, You know, our group has done great work in in our heart and vascular um, group has been doing super stuff you know in the in the CHF population already along these lines, where in fact in our home care group is doing the same thing, where you you're getting this this data and this new data. And when you see earlier than you ever would have seen before that somebody added three pounds, you know, they gained three pounds since yesterday, or they started to, you know, from a patient reported, you know, comment, they started to cough more often, or that they have a swollen belly well, okay, now we know something's going on. Their heart's not working right. They're retaining fluids. Maybe we can titrate their medication. And we do because we find out about this and they never end up being readmitted. That connected health approach is absolutely essential. But what we do in the Innovation Center is we also are looking for people on the front lines who have really creative and passionate insights around being better there. You know, and I, I will say that some of my favorite innovations have come into that space. this there's one called Heart Safe Motherhood. Uh, it was a physician named Sindhu Srinivas and a fourth year medicine fellow, Adi Hirschberg, working with um, one of the women in my group. Um, Katie Mirage is, is an innovation manager in our group. And they came to us with this problem of, of postpartum preeclampsia, right? So so you might say, back to your question, why did you take something like that on? Well, it was the number one driver of, uh, you know, of in the maternal population of seven-day readmissions of morbidity among that maternal population is an important problem. You know, they had tried a lot of things that hadn't worked. Free walk-in clinics, right? Calling people or sending a visiting nurse from their home. And when I say it didn't work, what I mean is, you know, ACOG, the society, had come out with a, a standard of care that meant for these women at risk for high blood pressure related to their pregnancy, you know, postpartum preeclampsia, You were supposed to have two blood pressure values that first week after discharge, you know, the the highest risk week, right? And we had that for nobody because nobody showed up at this free walk-in clinic. And when we called, they didn't answer the call and they didn't call us back. And and frankly, a lot of people didn't want to talk to us. You know, so Sindhu and and Katie and Adi, you know, set up this totally different method where we send the women home with a blood pressure cuff. There's a simple off-the-shelf CVS Walmart blood pressure cuff And what they start doing is a texting protocol, right? They had observed in the clinic that all of the women were texting. Texting was clearly the preferred modality of communication. So they just start to iterate on different ways of texting, times of day and the communication and the language, et cetera. You know, that type of of intervention, it it was remarkable. It's very simple. It ended up, instead of having those two blood pressure values, you know, for nobody, we ended up having the blood pressure information we needed for eighty two percent of the population, um, from so from zero to eighty two percent. and then you know readmissions went essentially, we we saw no readmissions, you know, from the area that had been driving the highest seven day readmissions, just because we now knew and we could you know we could act more quickly on an area you know something that was developing, and we, we saw it before it was too late. so So that kind of connected health approach is the approach. the us focusing on it is, know, you have some clinicians who say, this is really important. I really care. I have some insights that I want to, you know, actually not leave in the idea space. I don't want to be happy with some good ideas because ideas are frankly worthless. I want to turn that idea into some kind of experiment, into some kind of test. And we'll work with them to design those experiments that we can do really fast and and at low cost.
0: The problem is, We're not going to get paid on 30-day readmissions. We got to not have 30-day readmissions. So what Mm -hmm. are we going to do? What your team or extended team figured out is that, all right, the main answer to this question is connective health. Obviously, these patients are being discharged. If they're going to come back, it's something, it's due to something that transpired in their home. So we got to what'd you call it, automated hovering. We got to hover better.
1: Yeah. And then... So it's more complicated than that. And I definitely am oversimplifying, right? I'll tell you two different stories that, that may give you a little bit clearer answer. In this last round of projects that we took on, we have this accelerator program where we select what are, what are the projects we're going to focus on you know, in a given six-month period. There were these two projects that bubbled to the top. One was around people who are discharged in IV antibiotics. So this is led by a guy named Keith Hamilton, who's the head of Infectious Disease Transition Services. And now in his case, they had actually already come up with a solution that was incredibly effective. You know, so so with pharmacy um, people and people on his team managing these patients who were discharged in IV antibiotics, they had actually already discovered that they could reduce readmissions, 30-day readmissions by like 40%, right? And, and the problem that they were having was, it was a different problem. They weren't finding out about people who were being discharged in IV antibiotics, so they were only covering one part of the potential community, patients. That's one opportunity. And, you know, what did we see there? Well, we saw it was one of the highest 30-day readmission populations anyway. About 30% of those folks would come back within 30 days, very complex patients, you know, with some serious illness. On the other side, you had this team that was actually dealing with liver issues, so cirrhosis and and liver transplant, which also was one of the highest 30-day readmission populations, also around 30% or so. And they had actually also come up with a successful solution. They had been doing this connected health. They had been sending scales home and, and being connected to the patients when they went home. They had also achieved a, a really dramatic reduction in admissions. But their problem was a little different. Like their problem was that it was costing about $1,000 per patient, which is a pretty high price tag. And so, you know, it's funny because they're they're all about 30-day readmissions. But the innovation in the first case had to do with, how can you help me find the patients? Cause I actually have a good solution. I just can't find the patients to apply it to. And the second case was, I, I have a great solution, but it's way off the charts in terms of cost. How can we do sort of the things that we've already learned work, but do it at way, way lower cost. The, the problem is nuanced, right? In that in that latter case around cirrhosis liver transplant, the team did do a connected health intervention, but what they started to do is move things, for example, from some of the heavier, more expensive equipment to more of a texting intervention, which is, tends to be much cheaper. They did some care model redesign, more of a top of the license redesign, so each person, you know, can can do the thing that they're qualified to do, and not everything has to reach the doctor. It can go to the nurse, and not everything has to reach the nurse. It can it can be handled by the assistant. You know, they were able to go from a $1,000 intervention that was effective at reducing readmissions down to 50 bucks. I mean That's a 95 percent reduction to get essentially the same efficacy, the same result in reducing the the readmissions. On the other side, it was actually a piece of technology that was sitting on top of our IS systems, sniffing for who are these people who are supposed to get IV antibiotics, finding them, telling the the ID transition team about them. And so they could apply their really cool solution to the, the people who needed it.
0: Well, let's talk about these results for a moment because one of the things that we've mentioned several times has been the idea of fast failing. And so if you're going to set up something to fail fast, one of the things that you have to obviously be collecting are success metrics. And in certain cases, the soup to nuts success metric is relatively quick. Like if you're checking 30 day readmissions, for example, probably within 30 days you can have some metrics. Yeah. On the other hand, there are other things which take a much longer time to figure out what the result is. You know, if you're trying to check outcomes on in some chronic disease or whatnot, it could take years to find the final answer. So, what metrics do you collect right up front? You know, how do you figure out how you're going to evaluate something where the final answer isn't going to be apparent within the the period of time that you've allocated for the experiment
1: yeah it's a great question so i think this is a a game of leading indicators to some degree so all of this is based on scientific method right yeah you know, so you have a hypothesis and you need to design an experiment to test that hypothesis and you're asking yourself, like, what, what are the big assumptions, the critical assumptions that success really depends on? In other words, if I'm wrong, this won't work at all. Right? And this is now I'm talking about when you, when you have an idea of how you're going to solve it. It's different when you, you're, you know, you're still in the early exploratory phase, which we can, we can also talk about. And you, know, you kind of work backwards about what do you believe has to happen. The first thing may be, boy, I believe that they are going to respond to my text. You know, and then if they respond to my text, I believe that they're going to take this action. I believe that if they take this action, you know, you're going to see this difference. And, you know, and and so it is this cascade, if you will. And you can you can look backwards and say, OK, what what can I see quickly? So maybe the ultimate outcome isn't for a year or, or maybe I need a much, much larger sample size to really see scientifically if I've moved this. But usually you can design something to say, well, gee, that depends on this person taking this action in this way. And I can design something to see can I get them to take that action, which is simply a leading indicator, and then you kind of build up from there. What we try to get away from is this concept of vanity metrics, right? You know, and this is this has kind of been written up by Eric Ries and Lean Startup, and I think is becoming better known generally. Most innovation really does fail from premature scaling. In other words, you're you're trying to go big before you get it right. And, and the new philosophy is simply get it right first, get it right before you scale it. And it's a really difficult tension because when you're working in a big health system, it's big, and you want to help all patients, and you have lots of you know diversity and you know lots of different scenarios and, and patient segments. You want to execute quickly and go big quickly and make an impact quickly, and of course that leads you right into this trap of okay, I need to scale quickly because people have an expectation, and therefore I choose these metrics like revenue or. You know profit or patient served or you know this this you know ultimate outcome of how much money did I save in, in readmissions Th- those are vanity metrics because they all mean that bigger is better. So they all reinforce this notion of more is better as opposed to metrics that are designed to say did you get it right? Let me ask you a question.
0: This might highlight the tension perhaps between vanity metrics and leading indicators. So I had someone say, to me recently he he goes can you only measure activity and engagement or can you measure results
1: yeah so you can measure both right depends what he means by activity and engagement but well let's go back to safe motherhood right the postpartum preeclampsia like so what is the results in that case what are we really worried about like we don't want women to die we don't want women to have a stroke um, economically we don't want women to to end up back in the hospital those are you know real outcomes, right? Ultimate outcomes, and of course those things are measurable. But but what do I need? Well, I, I need the blood pressure values. I need to know if their blood pressure is spiking. And what do, you know? How do I get that? Well, there's a bunch of ways I could get that. I could use sort of the newfangled blood pressure cuffs that are wireless and just broadcast to me. We actually found some issues there and went with the old school, you know, low tech off the shelf like CVS ones I talked about. Whether women are responding whether they are responding to your text and actually texting back in the blood pressure values, what would you call that, right? Would you call that an outcome? Eh, probably not, right? It's an engagement factor. It's actually, it is a leading indicator. So you're, you're measuring engagement, you're measuring response, right? There's some other things that you might measure too, accuracy, like you give me the right blood <laughs> pressure. But you're measuring a lot more than that also, which is, okay, great, now I have the blood pressure. So what? The The number of times that health systems have data but don't act on it and if they don't act on it nothing changes that's that's a a high number that's what happens most of the time so after the first question of can i get the blood pressure can i can i get patient engagement which of course is measurable then the next thing you might ask is okay well then did our care team do the thing that they needed to do so if you saw high blood pressure what's supposed to happen like did we text him back did we tell him to try to take this medication did we say hey i need you to come in so i can actually take an in-person measurement Right, so so there's this sequence of events, and you can test all along the way. Did the right thing happen? Those tend to be early on engagement metrics. Did a person do the thing you need them to do to get to the you know the outcome that you're seeking? Of course, without those, you don't get the outcome metrics. And if you get all the engagement in the world, and people are, are texting you their blood pressure, and the staff, that you know the care team is reacting and responding and escalating as appropriate, pulling people in, but you're ultimately not changing the incidence of strokes or death or readmissions, well, then you're doing the wrong thing because then it's, it's all engagement with no outcomes doesn't matter either.
0: The idea would be, so you figure out, all right, the first thing that we need to happen, our first leading indicator, which is right at the very beginning. So this is way, very far ahead type of leading. Yes. <laughs> you know, you, you measure that. If that's a success, then you figure out, all right, well, next step would be this. Let's measure at that point. Now it's yeah. a little bit less of a leading indicator. And then you just kind of, in a very incremental stepwise fashion, get the whole way
1: through. Yeah. Always keeping your eye on the ball, right? Like you never forget that the women texting you, the blood pressure values is not the win, <laughs> right? <You know>? The, <laughs> right? The win is, is healthy people who don't have to come back into the, into the health system. But yeah, yeah, you do. You look at and you break down and say, okay, I can design experiments that, that test the kind of the critical assumptions and, and the critical steps for sure.
0: I want to get back to these vanity metrics. Okay, so let's talk about CEOs for a sec. You've got yeah. a CEO who obviously is under. I mean, these are vanity metrics for a reason because yeah. they want to write a press release, and in some cases, that they need to write a press release <laughs> that yeah, yeah, yeah. talks about patients served, or you know, talks about revenue or profits, or yeah. or you know, all of those things that you just mentioned. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm cottoning onto the notion that by focusing on those metrics. Bad things happen. So, as a CEO, let's give some advice. Like, what's the do not? What shouldn't you do? Because they still need to be talking about patients served. So, how do they make sure that that is not trickling down through the organization and causing issues? But then, on the other hand, you know, maybe there's some do's.
1: It is the CEO's job, and the head of operations, and the head of the practices' job to focus on being financially viable so we can continue to deliver services you know that that's critically important so so i'm i'm all about you know results and outcomes i actually remember when we first started using this language back at intuit scott cook and brad smith who the founder and the ceo and i would would have these conversations around you know get smart fast don't get big fast and and a lot of people really didn't like it cuz they're like that sounds academic like we're not a charity what do you mean that like, get smart fast it's not all about learning it's about you know, doing, we're trying to create our next billion dollar business. It's, it is about getting big fast. And so we had to flip it around to kind of say the best way to get big fast is to get smart fast, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so you're sitting there saying, yeah, absolutely. Impact is the goal. It's just that we know from so many, you know, stories and so much studying of, of innovation and, and entrepreneurship that you're going to almost always start in the wrong direction. And, you know, Clay Christensen had this wonderful study it things like back in 2008, that he published that if you if you forget all the things that failed and you only look at innovation successes you know across industries and types of innovation you know the things that actually ended up working like 93% more than 9 out of 10 started in the wrong direction you know youtube was a video dating service and facebook was a hot or not site and the angry birds that you know is the 52nd one because the first 51 failed and android was from your camera it wasn't even for your your phone you know and and so the thing that we know is you're almost certainly going to start in the wrong direction, but we got to keep our eye on the goal. That's what the CEO is doing. It's like, look, the goal here for financial viability is you got to make sure that we are using this consistency across our practices and moving these metrics of whatever it is, access or reimbursement or you know avoiding the thirty-day readmissions, et cetera, or increasing throughput. So you're kind of keeping your eye on that ball. The watchouts are are pretty interesting you always ask, like, how do you know you got it right? Right. If this, if this methodology is all get it right before you scale it, you know, you should be asking questions like, how do you know you got it right? What is your evidence that this works? The number of times I've seen people, you know, implement multimillion dollar systems that then fail and, and fail to ever produce the de- desired returns. is too many. So you don't want to do that scale prematurely. So you're always asking, what have you seen that tells you you're going in the right direction? Bad behavior, you know, bad behavior often comes from a good place. You know, people see something they love and they fall in love with it. Like, oh, I love what you did there. Let's go, 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 go. I'll give you money. I'll scale it. I want you to, you know, go as fast as you can on that. I like that initial result. But, you know, like the team often knows, well, there's still a whole bunch of stuff that we need to understand before we're ready to really scale it because we haven't tested this integration into operations or, you know, we've done it with a fake back end. But, you know, at scale, that would be way too much manual work for the care team. So we need to actually at this point now integrated into Epic so now I have to work with the IS team to do that. And so that, you know, kind of go prematurely because I love something can love it to death. And that, that is a, uh, you know, that definitely is a pitfall. So, so you're, you're constantly keeping your eye on the big win on the outcome and you're just asking, you're, you're kind of keeping track of what your core hypotheses are and saying, have I tested them? Have I validated them? And do I feel comfortable that it's, it's time to go.
0: I know you had mentioned at one juncture, a three-part model is this part of that?
1: Yeah, it really is, and I mean, I learned this add into it, and, and it took us a while to kind of get what I call these graduation criteria right. You know, if you have those three horizons, the question then is, well, what's between them? Like, what makes something move from an experiment to something where you say it's validated? It's time to scale, um, and those are the graduation criteria. The way that we tend to work here is in sort of these three phases of Could it work? (laughs) You know, just sort of, you know, you have this idea like, gee, I wonder if that could work if I throw something together really fast held together by chewing gum and scotch tape on the back end. And, you know, you've got sneakers on, you're running up and down the hall instead of using a network. Could this work? What is the interaction? Do people interact with this the way I hope? And, you know, does it kind of for 10 or 20 or 30 people, does it do what I hope? And that's kind of the first phase. And there's a set of graduation criteria there. And then the next one is sort of does it work? does it work as a little bit more rigorous? You know, you might use an RCT. You might use some other larger sample size. Because now you're asking, I really want to know, does this work when we implement it at at a bigger scale? And if that kind of goes well, you're in that final bucket of the way we work. This is now the way we work, and your goal is always to make it the way we work. I think the most interesting graduation criteria are the first ones. They're interesting in a bunch of ways, like, You don't really look at use because I can get anyone to use anything, right? You look at reuse. Do they use it again? You know, you look at net promoter score, like likelihood to recommend. It's a very powerful metric. But you don't necessarily look at the absolute value of that. Like, you know that world-class net promoter score is 70, you know, a 70% score on likelihood to recommend. But you actually, if it's early and you've, you've done good methodology, you've actually kept a narrow focus and probably left a bunch of things out that are ultimately important, I might have a net promoter score of zero, or even negative, and I'm looking at the pace of change. Wow, in one month I went from a negative 20 to a positive 20. Ah, directionally, that's really powerful, right? So I'm looking at net promoter score, but I'm looking at it change. You know, and I'm looking at the needle. Hey, why am I doing this? What is the reason we're doing this project? Are we doing it for hospital acquired infections to bring them down? We're doing it for readmission rate, or whatever it happens to be. And so even if I'm only doing it on a sample size of 20, 30, 40, 50, did it work? Did I, did I see any change? right? Did anything happen there that, that is useful, that, that's indicative that maybe I have reason to believe that at larger scale, it might actually work? And then a the fourth one is sort of this, is there a way to economically capture value from what you did? You know, So not the amount of revenue, the amount of profits, because those would be vanity metrics, but more, hey, you know what? Yes, I actually did see this conversion rate. I saw somebody go from you know, interest in our same day scheduling to actually scheduling to, you know, of those 40, some ended up in, in surgeries. Okay, yes, there is a way we're going to capture value from this intervention, from this, this new way of doing things. And so you have a story about what you're going to test at larger scale. And those tend to be the graduation criteria that move from experiment to, okay, time to time to go.
0: Roy, you are a prolific writer and speaker. If someone is interested in getting a little bit deeper into some of the things that you are working on,
1: where would you direct them? Our website is a pretty good resource. Just search on Pen Medicine and Innovation. It's probably going to be the the top one that, that comes up there. Thank you
0: so much for being on the podcast today, Roy.
1: Thank you, Stacey. Thanks for having me. It was really fun talking to you.